Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back. I am Diana Kander. Excited to have you join me for another installment of Season 3, Focusing on Failure. Isn't that an exciting, uplifting introduction? I figure if I save failure with a lot of enthusiasm, it might make the topic more chipper if you will. And today's guest is going to help me do just that because he has boundless energy and a lot of enthusiasm for our conversation. Guy Winch is a licensed psychologist. He's a therapist that focuses on emotional injuries. He thinks that we focus a lot on physical injuries, but just don't do enough for emotions that come along with rejection, guilt, failure, and other everyday hurts. And I was just really curious about how somebody who usually counsels people in relationships and breakups, how they would approach dealing with a professional failure, how they would counsel somebody who might not know to go to a therapist and to talk to them or that they would even need to about the real pain and anguish that they might be going through. Having experienced a particularly difficult failure a number of years ago, which I found really embarrassing and isolating. And I certainly didn't go out and talk to anybody about it. I did what most of us do, which is try to ignore it and move on from it as quickly as possible. And that, as you'll find out today, is pretty much the wrong approach to that problem. And Guy Winch is the best person to tell us the exactly right approach to do it. Guy's several books have been translated into 26 different languages. His three TED Talks have been viewed over 25 million times. He currently has a podcast with another guest of this show, Lori Gottlieb. It's called Dear Therapists, and it was produced by Katie Couric. You'll hear more about that in the episode, as well as you'll hear Guy and I talk about why professional setbacks feel like a broken heart, how to properly grieve after one of these setbacks, and Guy and I work together to design a failure morning worksheet. Morning. Morning a failure. So you won't want to miss that. Before we get to the show, please take a second to review the show, rate it, let me know what you think of it, and please enjoy this conversation with Guy Wench, especially how he says pity party. It's my favorite part of the show. You usually deal with heartbreak, rejection, personal clients who come in to see you about things going on. And I really want to talk about professional failures because I feel like there's so much overlap and so much emotional um, I don't know, trauma that comes along with professional failures that nobody ever acknowledges. And I was reading articles from you. And the thing that really stood out to me that really made me want to have this conversation is whenever we have a loss, like somebody dies that we care about, everybody acknowledges that we need care and gr- time to grieve. And whenever we have a breakup or something that we've been working on fails in a spectacular way, 
everybody minimizes it and uh, as do we and i really want to focus on that part of the grieving process today that sounds great because in fact there's so much overlap and psychologically speaking emotionally speaking there is so much overlap and i don't think that gets enough attention so by all means let's dive in i i mean i think that there are people <laughs> i i myself have dealt with um several large scale professional losses and so i relate very much to the things that you write about where uh, i had one company fail and i felt like i was in the fetal position for six months i didn't want to talk to anybody i didn't want to go out and i felt extra embarrassed about how i felt why does that happen to us why is it why is it similar to a, a loss like what, what's going on well first of all the more we invest in something the more attached we get to it the more connected we feel to it and the more we feel it represents us and therefore the more personal and the more difficult anything to do with that is so if you invested in a company i don't mean financially i mean certainly financially too but if you invested blood sweat and tears into a company and it's your company and you had hopes for it and you know we always you know the euphemism is that's your baby well yeah because you incubate it you nurse it you 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 take care of it you devote yourself to it completely and then when that fails it is not like losing a child but for bit but it's certainly a significant loss because all that which you invested is is gone and there, so there's a loss of it on the one hand and as you said the the embarrassment of it is that that represented you so it's not just the company that failed but but you as a part of it um are associated with that failure it tarnishes our self esteem our reputation our image you know in in many cases so it's a very very personal thing just you know people know this of course but we spend more time at work than we do with our loved ones in most cases and when we're building companies we spend a lot of the time that we don't spend at work working on that as well so it is a significant portion of our day that goes into it of our lives that goes into it of of our emotional uh, resources and intellectual resources and time so that's a significant investment and losing such an investment has a significant price you know a lot of advice about failure is very attitudinal so you know failure is a step to success you should see every failure as a learning opportunity and my hypothesis is that no matter how much you even say that to other people the devastation and the pain that you feel just makes you blind to all of that attitudinal advice is that right so look i have a two step approach to failure step number 1 you get time to grieve the loss um and you you get time to hurt if it was literally 6 months in a fetal position that might be a lot I would probably suggest a little shorter but you get the time to be in the fetal position you get the time to feel absolutely devastated to have the hopes and the dreams dashed you absolutely you know it's not about not looking at that pain um but that should be limited in time and i always actually suggest you know this is a subjective call you limit it you decide how much time you're going to give yourself i for example just a personal example it's not Well, how we would qualify but you know i have three successful books out i wrote for 14 years 
roughly 20 to 30 hours a week for 14 years before I published a word. I cannot tell you how many failures there were along the way because I stopped counting of projects that obviously went, went nowhere. I obviously loved writing because I persisted, but I understand the pain of, of you know, that, that kind of setback. I would always um, give myself like, okay, I'm giving myself the weekend to feel bad. Now this was because I just spent two months on a project, not you know, uh, a company which takes obviously much more than that, but, but I would limit it. I would give myself, okay, here's how long you get to feel bad. And then I would, I would throw myself a magnificent pity party. I would truly decorate and go to town. Um, but that's, it's two steps. So the goal is first, let's validate the feelings, let's validate the distress. The second comes to the stuff that annoys you. Um, because the attitudinal stuff I have a problem with. And the problem is not that it's not correct. Yes, failure is a great teacher. Of course. However, that refrigerator magnet tells you nothing about how to learn the lessons you need to learn from it. And in my book, Emotional First Aid, in the chapter that I have about failure, I talk about it in my writings and in the talks I give, I talk about there are very specific things you need to do to be able to extract those lessons. It's not that simple to do. It actually takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of work examining that thing that caused you so much pain, which is why so many people avoid that work and hope that somehow by osmosis those lessons will, will come to them and then they try again without actually having learned what they might from it. So yes, there is a lot to learn. Yes, it is a stepping stone to success, but not naturally. You actually then have to put in the work to do the learning in order to then have a stepping stone to success. Before we talk about the work that you have to put in, one of the things that you've said is that when you talk about broken hearts, you say all of your natural instincts lead you in the wrong direction. Is that also true when it comes to a professional failure? Pretty true. Um, <laughs> yes. And what is our natural instinct to do? Externalize blame. It's the circumstance. It's the this. It's all my luck. You know, like uh, the other person did this and succeeded. Why didn't I? So, you know, a natural instinct is to look outside for the cause of failure. I am not saying blame yourself because as, when we get to it, you'll see that's not what I'm saying at all. I am saying let's find out what went wrong, which if you externalize the blame in that kind of way, you are unlikely to. It's possible that this vendor screwed up here and this person screwed up there and bad luck and uh, all those are possible. But if you just stay with that, you're not going to learn much from it because all of those are things you cannot control. The goal here is to find out what are the things I can learn from that are actually in my control because those I can implement. The everyone else's fault but mine, the luck, the universe, karma, whatever, uh, stars not aligning, not much you can do about. So it's kind of pointless. Um, so, that, you know, so, so there's that tendency to externalize. The other tendency is to just avoid it. Um, and just not want to think more. Let's just move on to the next thing. That's pain. Right. Let's, let's quickly move on. And in most cases, let's try the same thing again. I'm not saying the same company, um, but I'm saying the same approach again, but harder. Um, because if we just squint and do it harder, surely this time it will work. Well, no, because if there were any fatal flaws or any systemic flaws or any issues, just doing them harder it's not going to work. So you, you know, so but but so those are two typical things we do. We we just don't want to deal with it. We externalize the blame. 
we, we try again, or, and this is unfortunate, we run away from it and never want to try it again. There are way too many people who, after one professional failure, have decided this career is not for me, or this endeavor, or entrepreneurship, or whatever it is, is not for me, because if I didn't succeed, it must not be for me. And that's such a shame. It might not be, but you certainly don't know that after one failure. Another thing that you talk about for romantic relationships is that hope can be incredibly destructive when your heart is broken. And I actually feel that way um, about the middle of a failure when you've acknowledged to yourself, gosh, this is going really poorly, but you do what researchers call escalating commitment. So you, you don't actually take action on the thing that you know is not working uh, because of this thing called hope. Do you feel like it applies in, that, in the professional setting as well? I, I do, but I think you don't take action not on the thing, you, because usually if you know there's something that's not working, sometimes you will double down and, and because of hope. But usually you're not quite sure what's not working. And that's what's dangerous because then it's vague. Then you actually aren't changing anything. You're not trying to figure out what is the issue here. And you're probably thinking, well, if I just keep trying, then luck will finally turn the corner or this will finally start working or people will finally get why this is such an important product. If they didn't till now, there's a reason. If you're not going to figure out what that is, it's unlikely that that will happen again. The most predictive thing we can say about human behavior, which is not the success of companies, of course, but about human behavior is past behavior is the best indication of future behavior. But there's, insofar as behavior is a related thing here, that's going to be true. So if something wasn't quite working, if, unless you fix it, you know, it won't. And, 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 it's, and it's going to sound terrible. So I apologize to you and to everyone, but it's a little lazy, intellectually lazy, because I know it's not lazy in terms of work. You work your, yourself to the bone. But it's a little intellectually lazy and emotionally lazy primarily to not take stock and figure out, you know, what's in the middle of the failure. This is not going in the right direction. Let's try and figure out why and if this is worth continuing or is it, you know, hopeless. And at least if we're going to throw more money in it or more time in it, let's have a sense that that actually might be useful for whatever reason, as opposed to just cross, you know, cross our fingers and hope. Well, so can we talk about the steps that we take to learn? Maybe we can talk about the middle of something not working and then after it's just, you know, totally dead as a doornail. Yeah, so let's talk about it. So I recommend that you have to approach these things. And the term I use a failure is a failure detective. And why I say a failure detective is because, you know, I haven't seen many of those like CSI shows, but, but as far as I know, uh, a forensic investigator does not enter a crime scene and go, oh my goodness, look at the blood spatter on that wall. Wow, that's terrible. They don't have an emotional reaction. They just note it unemotionally. That blood spatter indicates this. And you already feel terrible in the middle of a failure, certainly at the end of it. You already feel bad. You're already questioning yourself. You're already questioning everything. The last thing you need to do is to question more. You need to be as unself-critical as possible because all you're trying to find out as the failure detective is what in your system wasn't strong enough, wasn't good enough. To that end, for example, it's the same thing when a kid comes home with a poor grade in school. 
it's terrible that they get an F for failure because they didn't fail. Their system of studying certainly did. So all the message should be to those children is, hey, you know what the F means? Your system of preparing is not adequate. Let's go through it and figure out what you need to change because you're smart enough to succeed. If you didn't, it was about effort, preparation, system, all of it. Let's figure out where the deficits are. It's the same principle. If something's not going well, why? You have to understand what isn't happening that you expected to happen. What is working according to plan? What is allowing you to proceed and to get as far as you did? What are the parts that are working, but what isn't? And often it's, you know, again, it depends on what the company is, depends on what the professional situation is, but it's often a nuance. It's a detail or it's a critical one, or it's a, you know, like a combination of things. You have to figure out what it was, because unless you can figure out what it was, you can't fix it and you need to be able to fix it. And so but that analysis is painful because you've invested hope and you've invested expectation in setting things up. I'm assuming that these businesses, professional people invest years in their training and their careers in creating companies and business plans and hiring and getting the right people around them, all, that, all of that. It's difficult to look, wow, all that very careful preparation and planning, something was very wrong. Um, apparently, though. And so unless you know what it is, you cannot change it and change something you should if it's not going well. Um, and so you have to be a detective about it. You can't go in it with like, oh my goodness, I'm such an idiot. I, I knew I shouldn't have hired that guy, but ah, I just didn't listen to myself. That's not useful. What's useful is to say that person isn't functioning well. And when given that I made an error because I had the suspicion, I need to look at how I talked myself into hiring him despite my doubts so that I don't talk myself into hiring the next person who might be a dud. So there are two things there. A, person needs to be replaced or managed very differently. And B, I need to look at my decision-making process in terms of hiring because something convinced me to hire someone. Maybe he was like the 10th candidate and I just didn't think I'd find the right person so good enough. Apparently not. So I've interviewed for this podcast a lot of people who have been at the front lines of things that didn't work out, like big failures that were public. And it almost feels like they're maybe not in the best position to be the detective because oftentimes their interpretations feel really skewed to me. Just listening to the story, it seems like, I don't know, those should not, those would not be the takeaways if I was the detective on the project who's not emotionally invested in it. What, what do you think about that? Can we be that objective detective? We cannot be unless we instruct ourselves to be. Those are not people in most cases. I mean, I don't know who specifically you have in mind, but I've seen many of these uh, either in the press or, 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 you know, in working with some of these you know, companies. Um, and the tendency is about um, image management, is about what the PR person says is the right thing to say, is about failing upwards for them personally. So maybe the company just went kaput, but if they can parlay it, into another new job for them, excellent. I was actually, uh, a bunch of years ago, I was at a, uh, a branding conference, speaking at a branding conference in Istanbul. And I was actually talking about emotional health. So uh, I was slightly blindsided when the question, uh, it was a Q&A, and the question from the audience was, it was just around the Volkswagen's emission uh, scandal. 
And they were saying, here's Volkswagen, their, their brand is so tarnished right now. What would you recommend to them in terms of managing that failure? And I saw what they were doing. Uh, it's not what I would suggested. But what I said to them is that if I'm a customer, if I'm a Volkswagen customer, I have a trust issue with you now. And so I can tell you how I think they need to mend trust with their clients, with their customers, um, with their reputation. It's about mending trust, not trying to just, you know, tap dance away until, you know, the, the, the press, uh, the news cycle changes. Um, and, and, and companies try and get away with what's the least we can do to admit ownership, to admit responsibility. There's often, often legal implications for that, of course. Uh, I would defer to, to lawyers in it. But, but the goal, I mean, what I said about Volkswagen, by the way, is they have to do whatever the equivalent is of showing us their phone. In other words, that was a huge thing that happened in your company. Unless you have a handle on how that went down, how that could be that that was done in such a way that it required so many people to either be unaware or look the other way. Unless you know how what went wrong there, that that didn't get caught and stopped. There's no trust I have that something similar won't get caught and stopped tomorrow. So that's what I need to see from you guys. Like, what have you figured out in terms of how that got by you? Not what usually happens with companies, not with Volkswagen, not with Deutsche Bank, not with any companies that are involved in big scandals. But um, that aside from it, I think that what the big company leaders do, the CEOs do, they're, they're very much busy protecting their own reputations and their own future employability. And um, unfortunately, um, that's what people go with. Now, if I'm the next person to hire them, I would be highly concerned because I would be maybe willing to hire them because obviously they might have had a great track record to get where they got to. But I would want to know from them, tell me what went wrong here, please. What's your understanding of it? Because I need to know that you actually have a handle on it, not what you're saying to the press, that what you can tell me about what went wrong that's in a, some way compelling or what you learned from it. And many of them probably won't be able to, but I then wouldn't want to hire them. Well, let's talk about the pity party. Mm. So I, I, another hypothesis I have about this process is uh, people are, are, are horrible at mourning failures or, or packaging them up. What they, what they live with is like the shame from it. And, and that's what takes over. So uh, I'm trying to put, I'm a, I'm a workshop creator and a worksheet maker. So I want to create like this little failure morning worksheet for people to go through. Um, I have wanted to share with you to get your feedback, but I'm just curious first, if you were to make a failure morning worksheet, what would it, what would it look like? What are the questions that you would pose to people to ask themselves? So, okay. But with, this is step two, right? Because in that fetal position moment, you're not doing any worksheets. Yeah. You're, you're sucking your thumb and crying <laughs> for money. Um, <laughs> Metaphorically. Sure. Um, <laughs> so after that, yeah, uh, when you return to functioning mode, um, it's about um, a uh, really starting with a question about really what what went wrong writ large, and then it's getting into the weeds, and then it's getting into what is the principle behind whatever that thing was. So let's look at just a famous example of the. Um, uh, the uh, was it the Challenger with the O-rings? Um, sure. uh, it was an O-ring. It was a stupid part that wasn't uh, adequate. That had you know problems, which caused the entire shuttle to explode. The O-ring is not the answer to what failed. The answer to what failed is what allowed the O-ring 
to not get fixed? That's an entirely different kind of questioning. So was it not noted at the frontline level, engineering-wise? And I think it was at the time. Where did the communication stop so that it didn't get to decision makers? Or if I don't recall now, many years ago, but if it did get to decision makers, what was the process that didn't pay that enough attention? If it did get stopped away to the decision makers, what systemically is problematic? What is the corporate culture there or the culture in general um, that prevents important messages from getting from the bottom to the top? There are certain statistics that show that something like 3 to 5% of frontline complaints about products get to decision makers. So you have a customer service staff that is rich with information about what might be problematic with your product, your packaging, your shipping, whatever it is, and the decision makers aren't getting that information. Um, and they're fine with it because they're not actually asking. Um, it's something just in the, in, the, in, in the culture of business that's problematic. Um, so that's what would be on the worksheet. It's not just where, what was the problem or problems, identify them, what allowed them to be maintained and to last and not get fixed? What was problematic in communication? What systems were not in place that would catch that next time? What is the messaging people are getting from the top down that prevents them from passing along vital information or from raising their hand and flagging an issue they think might be problematic, et cetera? I mean, it, it really, you're trying to figure out what to fix. And O-ring doesn't tell you what to fix. It's the system around it that does. Well, I love the idea of shifting it to like the process that failed as opposed to the thing or the person that makes a lot of sense. Can I go through this worksheet? Because yes. uh, mine is a lot more uh, on the emotional side of the person, like to help them get through the shame that they're yes. sitting Perhaps in. I should have been thinking of that, but I no, 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 <laughs> no, that's good stuff. Well, maybe <laughs> let's, let's I'm ask here, you. I should have, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, let me ask you about the questions sure. that you would ask yourself to get over the emotional embarrassment that few of yeah. us even acknowledge. Okay, no, but you, I'm happy to do, go through your work. No, I'd love uh, to hear your thoughts on it. All right. So it's so two words for that, yeah. and that is self-compassion. Yeah. The, the Self-compassion is about this. Self-compassion assumes one basic thing. We are human. We make mistakes. And my addition to that is, therefore, as long as we learn from them so that we don't make them again, we should forgive ourselves for them. The vast majority, maybe there's some that are not forgivable, but the vast majority are. So, but it starts with, we're human, we make mistakes. doesn't matter how successful you are, you're a human. And that's why we see so many successful people sometimes going into the press and saying such cringeworthy things, because they're human, no matter how successful, their success doesn't make them you know, infallible. It doesn't make them wise beyond wisdom. It's no, they can still have their blind spots in their moments. We are human. We make mistakes. So there was a mistake there that you made. If you were the head of it, then it was on you, whether you want to take that responsibility or not, but you forgive yourself for like, okay. And my bargain is if I can figure out what it is, one thing that would be important not a small thing, that would be important to do differently next time, will buy me that self-forgiveness because I could come out of this with some kind of valuable insight. And until I get that insight, I should keep looking for it. Because that way it'll be like an investment. Uh, you know, uh, It's cool. Your education. It's, it's valuable, yeah. 
And then I can forgive myself for it because I've already learned what I need to do. I can move on. And it's actually, you feel more empowered once you have that insight, once you truly get it, because like, ooh. Um, because then you're like, hmm, this can actually change a lot of different things. You know, here's an example. Um, there are certain blind spots we have that keep tripping us up. The same thing over and over again. Here's an example. Time management, people who are late. How is it they're late all the time? All the time. They're late all the time. <laughs> how have they not figured out how not to be late? And I'm not talking about the ones that are late and don't care. I'm talking about the ones that you see them rushing and stressed. <laughs> Sorry, I'm late. Like, they stress themselves out all the time, several times a day for years. How is it they haven't figured that out? And when I ask late people that, I'm like, just curious. Why do you think you haven't figured it out? Because you know there are people who are not. So clearly there's some kind of blind spot you have that's operating there that keeps you late. Do you know what those blind spots are? Because if you catch them, you can correct them. You cannot if you don't. Now, just here's the spoiler alert for lateness. There's usually one of a few things. One of them is that they don't understand fundamentally something that's very, very simple. You can't be late or on time. You can be late or early. <laughs> and then once in a while when things go wrong, you won't be early, you'll be on time. But punctual people don't get there on time. They get there early. That's the deal. Because that's what punctual means. And, and late people don't. Like, oh, no, that seems like a waste of time. <laughs> Correct. Punctual people always have the things they're going to do because they got there early. They're going to sit in a cafe. They're going to stroll around. They're going to answer a call, make, you know, like do some emails. That is one thing. The other thing is that late people don't count the small things. I, I do this with patients all the time. When they would come to my office, they'll be like constantly 10 minutes late. And I would be, how? How is this possible? But every week, because they're not going to make up the time. And they say, I give myself a 10-minute buffer because the subway comes every 10 minutes and it's a 15-minute subway ride. And I'm like, how much time do you account for leaving your desk, getting downstairs, getting to the subway, getting to my building, going through security, getting upstairs, waiting for the elevator, and then getting to the waiting room? How much time? Oh, no. Or like, you know, I hear this all the time. Uh, you know, my sister-in-law is famous for it. I always use her as an example. She hates it. But she will stand at the door and say, I'm ready. And I'll be like, um, where's your purse? Where's the umbrella? Where the car keys? Where's, the, <laughs> where's your coat? Oh, they're just, this one's up to this, that. So really she's five minutes away. I'm ready actually means I finished the previous thing I was doing. And now I'm ready to get ready to leave, but I'm not actually ready to leave. So there's certain blind spots people have um, that unless you catch them, they will fail you several times a day. And it's worth catching because they fail you several times a day. Look how much you can fix if you catch even one uncorrected. I think um, that's very accurate about the disconnect that happens. I mean, that's a great small example about how we think about what happened and what actually happened. And one of the hypotheses I have is like a lot of people think that experience alone is going to give them those life lessons. And without reflecting on your experience, it's impossible to get the life lessons that you desire. It's truly impossible. I mean, life gives you an opportunity to learn a lesson. Failure gives you an opportunity to learn. It doesn't teach it. You have to learn it actively yourself by looking for that lesson. The lesson is hidden somewhere, sometimes very much out of sight, sometimes close to sight. 
sometimes in plain sight, but you still have to go looking for it, find it, accept it, realize that it's probably not just, oh, I did that that one time, probably not, and then actually work on yourself to correct it. So there's a huge emotional process, and we are emotionally resistant to that process. Because as adults, we want to figure, and as professionals, we want to figure out, like, I, I know, I know how to do my job. I know how to do this. I don't, there's nothing, don't tell I'm me doing what it to forever. learn things. Yeah, yeah and I, I'm, I'm good. I'm like, look how respected I am. What are you talking about? All yes and true, but it doesn't matter how respected you are. You will make mistakes, again, because we're human. We all do. Thank you so much for your time today. How can people follow you, learn more about your work and what's coming up next? So my website is guywinch.com, G-U-I-W-I-N-C-H.com. I write uh, an advice column for TED called Dear Guy. Uh, comes out every couple of weeks and it's on TED.com. If anyone wants to write to me with questions, especially about the workplace, we're happy to get questions about the workplace. It's dearguy, G-U-I-D-E-A-R-G-U-Y at TED.com. I also have a new podcast with uh, Laurie Gottlieb, who's oh, cool. the advice columnist for The Atlantic, and it's called Dear Therapists. Oh, awesome. Uh, she's been on the show. With, great. Yeah. Great. So she's lovely and she's smart, and we have people come on and we talk about their problems. And then we do something most advice shows don't. We give them advice, but then we have them come back and tell us what happened. So we actually get the full story arc of what was the end of that story what happened when they implemented our advice or not and how that went and, and where they are. So those are the main things. Awesome. Can't wait to listen and uh, follow your journey. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. You know, for somebody who isn't a corporate consultant, Guy Wen sure has a lot of interesting insights that are incredibly applicable inside the corporate arena. I am so excited to have had the conversation. Would love to hear what you thought of it. Please find me online at Diana Kander on either Twitter or Instagram and just share with me your biggest takeaways. Looking forward to hearing them. And this is Diana Kander reminding you that curiosity is your superpower. So please be sure to use it today.